want the last episode to get too long. So I created a separate small podcast that goes with the diminished ovarian reserve discussion. What I'd like to talk about are the questions I get asked a lot about what should you do for diminished ovarian reserve. And I'm going to break this into a couple things. First, I'm going to talk about supplementation, very mildly about some things that can help it. Two, we'll talk about stimulation and what goes into the thought process of how we stimulate. And three, decision-making. When it comes to supplementation, it is very difficult to benefit people with diminished ovarian reserve with medications and vitamins. And I'll explain a little why. If your egg quality is poor because of age and you have a lot of abnormal embryos, like we were talking about the red M&Ms in the last talk, there's no medication that you can take that can convert your red M&Ms to green M&Ms. It's just not possible. So when we're talking about supplementation and things to improve, we're always talking about trying to get more eggs for you. And we're trying to make the eggs you do have that are already green M&Ms healthier. One of the more common treatments that people give for supplementations are going to be CoQ10, which is ubiquinol, and DHEA, which is a very mild testosterone. I've seen a lot of interesting things done with these. I've seen people check DHEA levels and tell patients they don't need to be on it or be on it. But in the end, I want you to understand what these two things do. CoQ10 is to help improve the eggs. And the way it does it is, is that ubiquinol is kind of like a tag that tags the abnormal cells and proteins in the body to be removed. And when you get older, we find that you have less of this. And so, like we were talking about in the last episode, sometimes people get hit with the diminished ovarian reserve tag, even though their diminished ovarian reserve is not the same type as someone who's older. So CoQ10 is really more beneficial for someone who is older, who you would expect to have lower ubiquinol levels in. If you are young and just make fewer eggs, it may not help you as much, but it won't hurt to take it. Most people recommend about 600 milligrams of CoQ10. If you're taking the metabolized form, you can get away with less. DHEA is a mild male hormone. And the thought process behind that and the thought process behind even people giving testosterone is that it might increase your antral follicle count. That is that base number at the beginning of the month of how many eggs you might get. So for my wife who only made three eggs, she was actually making one to two eggs when we went to our second IVF cycle. I put her on DHEA and you need to be on that for three months. And the reason it needs to be three months is because the eggs that you released today were made three months ago. So we want to benefit them you have to give time for the benefit to show up. Now, using DHEA in someone who has a high antral count may not have as much benefit. There are some articles out there 
that demonstrate DHEA may even improve egg quality, but those aren't as strong. I tend to use DHEA when people have a low antrophagal count to help improve, maybe make another egg. So if you're only making two eggs and you can now make a third one, that's a pretty big increase. Another issue that comes with diminished ovarian reserve, because it's usually associated with people who are older, is inflammation. People who have high inflammation, such as hot insulin resistance, can lead to poor egg quality. And so some doctors will use things like prednisone, dexamethasone, which are both steroids. Some people have even used inositol. All of these work towards the same thing, which is decreasing inflammation. At our clinic, anyone deemed to have diminished ovarian reserve will usually be put on dexamethasone to reduce that inflammation. How well this works is controversial, but again, one of those things that shouldn't hurt anything is why many doctors do it. I like to look at stimulations in categories. I get second opinions all the time, and I explain to patients, it's so easy to look at the outcome and think that everything went bad, when in reality, everything went good and they just didn't get pregnant. I like to think of IVF cycles kind of like marathons. If you run a marathon, which is 26.2 miles, and you get to the end, but you come in last place, you're not going to say, well, I'm never doing this again. Because you're like, hey, I just made last place. I, I'm almost there. Versus if you fall in the first two miles of a marathon and you ask your friend, hey, do you think I should do this again? I'd be like, no, you fell down in the first two miles of a 26.2 mile run. You definitely cannot do this. You need to stop. That's kind of how I see IVF cycles. If, if you're going through an IVF cycle and all your eggs are dying by the third day and nothing's making it, it's kind of like falling down in the beginning of that marathon. But if you go through the whole marathon, which is going through the whole IVF cycle, get blastocyst and just none come back normal, well, you still did great during the IVF cycle. Definitely try it again. Why would you not? The problem wasn't you running the marathon. The problem is you just didn't come in first place this time. Now, when you look at IVF cycles, I break it into parts. So the first part I call, which is the prep phase. The prep phase is getting your body ready for the IVF. The second part is the stimulation. That's where you're taking your medications. That's where you're making the eggs grow. The third part is the retrieval. Not everyone is as good as others at retrieving eggs. The fourth part is the culture. How are your embryos in the culture? The fifth part is the transfer. Now, some of these things you can't change, but let's start with each one. So let's start with first the prep phase. Why do we put people on birth control? The reason we put people on birth control is it synchronizes the eggs. Anyone who's ever done an intrauterine insemination has seen how their eggs spread apart. They'll have like a 20 millimeter follicle, a 15 millimeter, and a 12. That's not good because there's a zone of maturity between 15 and 20 millimeters. So if your follicles are above that, they're post-mature. If they're below that 15, they're immature. So birth control gets in the lineup, kind of like a race. They all go on the starting line. We don't want anyone cheating. 
and then we start the stimulation. The problem is some of the prep phases are very suppressive. So if I have someone who makes very few eggs, sometimes I won't put them on birth control because I'm concerned about the oversuppression. This is why some places, like ourselves, don't go over about 21 days of birth control due to the suppressive effects. Now, there are essentially three types of suppression. Birth control, progesterone only, and estrogen only. Now, you can also do what's called a cold start where you don't go on anything. But the point is, there are benefits to each one, and there's different ways to do that. That decision is never wrong. That's a decision that your doctor needs to make that's best for you. Just because you have diminished ovarian reserve does not mean you shouldn't go on birth control. It's just that if things don't go well and you make fewer, it might be a place to adjust to maybe get a couple more eggs. The second area is the stimulation. There are essentially three types of IVF protocols. There is what's called a Lupron, sometimes called a long Lupron or called an agonist cycle. That is where you take a hormone like Lupron, suppress the brain so it makes no hormones, and then the doctor controls all the hormones for your stimulation. The second type of protocol is called an antagonist. An antagonist is where your body doesn't have any suppression to prevent ovulation. Instead, you are taking injectable medications to make the eggs grow. And then near the very end of the cycle, you take a medicine called an antagonist to prevent you from ovulating. Lupron shuts down the brain, so you have no way to ovulate. That's why you don't have to take an antagonist. But with, with an antagonist cycle, since you have nothing preventing ovulation, you have to start an antagonist near the end of the cycle to prevent ovulation. The last type of cycle is called either a microdose Lupron or a co-flare cycle. In this cycle, the very low dose of Lupron causes a flare, meaning it causes your brain to release hormones in the first three days that will force your ovaries to push more eggs to grow. And then on top of that, you add the medications. You can mix and match these many, many ways to come up with many different protocols. Even at our place, we have more than just three protocols, but they all tend to have those parameters. When you rank them, the most suppressive protocol is going to be a Lupron cycle. That's an agonist cycle. That doesn't make it a bad cycle. I use that as well. People who are what we call early responders, who develop their eggs too soon, who have very short cycles, do well on Lupron cycles because we shut down their brain involvement and are able to control everything. Most people go on antagonist cycles. And the reason why most people use antagonist cycles are because of the fact that an antagonist cycle allows the doctor to have the option of using a different trigger shot. Most people use HCG to make you ovulate. HCG is very similar to the hormone LH and can make you ovulate. But if you are overstimulating and you take HCG, it can put you into ovarian hyperstimulation. Whereas if you take a Lupron trigger, which causes your own body to release as hormones, it will less likely put you in ovarian hyperstimulation. Now, you can only use that with an antagonist cycle because you never suppressed the pituitary, which is what Lupron does. It suppresses the brain from making hormones. So if you were doing a Lupron cycle or a Coflare cycle, you could not take a Lupron trigger to make you ovulate because your brain is already suppressed. It would basically do nothing. When it comes to egg retrieval, 
I find there are some doctors who get more eggs than others. There are essentially two ways, I believe, to retrieve eggs. There is the method where you place the needle into the follicle and you just remove the fluid. And there is another method called curtage, where you take the needle and rub it up and down the follicle, trying to release the egg. I have no evidence that one is better than the other. I tend to use the curtaging technique and tend to have a very high egg recovery rate. There are also what are called single lumen versus double lumen needles. Again, there is really no evidence that one is better than the other. I have never had an issue with retrieving eggs, so I do not use double lumen needles, but I'm not against them. When it comes to the culturing, this is probably the biggest difference between clinics. How you culture the embryos is really everything. And that comes down to a wide parameter of things. When people talk about good lab, what they're talking about is the equipment. A good lab has good air quality. Air quality is important because the embryos are exposed to the air every time you open an incubator. And if that air has a lot of free radicals, then those will be exposed to the embryos. Now, the way most labs clean their lab is they use something similar to a HEPA filter that takes the air and cleans it. But the problem with this type of system is that the air still comes in dirty. Now, most use an air handler that cleans the air first. There are some that are even better. At our lab, we use a system called the Life Air System, which is one of the best systems out there. Other places may use other systems that are very similar, but that is an important part is how well do they clean that air. The second part of culturing is what type of incubators they use. Some places use traditional incubators, which look kind of like refrigerators. You open them up and all of your embryos, yours, your neighbors, and everyone else's are in that incubator. The bad thing about this is every time they open that incubator and close it, every single embryo gets exposed to that air. And it takes that incubator because it's so large more time to get back to equilibrium because embryos don't like oxygen. Incubators have very low oxygen. Unfortunately, embryologists like oxygen and they won't live without it. So we have to have oxygen in the building when they're working. Now, other places like ours use what are called benchtop incubators. Benchtop incubators are very, very small incubators. When you open a benchtop incubator, Potentially, you don't even disturb the neighbor. And when you close it, within a couple minutes, it's back to equilibrium. This provides less stress onto the embryos and provides a better experience. The last part we talked about is the transfer technique. There are many ways to transfer. I think the most important thing when you're talking about transfer is that you want a doctor who's going to look at transfer as there can be problems. I go through the transfer. I put tons of notes on my transfer to let me know if something went wrong. So in the future, if I have to do another transfer, I can let the patient know where we're making changes. One of the best things that have come around for the transfer is a test called an ERA, which we will do an episode about at some point. That stands for endometrial receptivity assessment. And we are now able to find what is the perfect timing 
for your transfer. That is in regard to the progesterone. So we assume everyone wants the embryo to fall on day five into the uterus because that's what happens naturally. But there are some people who really need six days of progesterone before the transfer. Others need four days of progesterone. And this is a very important part. And I would say someone who only has one embryo, this is extremely important. So what was the purpose of going over cycles and understanding this? Because when we talk about diminished ovarian reserve, this stuff becomes important. If you are 25 years old, you have great ovarian reserve, almost anywhere you go, you are going to get pregnant. I don't care if that, gra- that lab is great. I don't care if they're not great. You're going to get pregnant. But if you have diminished ovarian reserve, such as poor egg quality, such as low antrophological count, low AMH, you need to make sure you're at the right lab. Because, for example, if you make fewer eggs, then you need to make sure you're at a lab that has a high conversion rate, meaning every embryo you make makes it the blastocyst. Now, no lab can make an embryo make it the blastocyst if it's a bad egg. But the point is, if you're only getting two or three eggs, you can't have a lab that has higher free radicals in their air and a poorer incubator that makes your embryo not make it to the end because you don't have as many chances. On the same token, if you only have one egg to put back because you have such severe diminished ovarian reserve, you do not want to be at a clinic that's just guessing when to put the embryo back. You want to be able to look at that ERA and say, that's going to give you my best chance. 